Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast chronicling horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Welcome once again to the Long Box of Darkness. Thank you listeners for tuning in to the special Halloween episode. Today I'm going to air an interview and a discussion that I did with my uh, longtime cohort Billy, Billy Delicious from Magazines and Monsters, my co-host on Into the Weird, our other podcast. I was supposed to deliver a werewolf show to you, except that the recording I did with a very special guest featuring werewolves we talked about lots of werewolf comics. It suffered some technical difficulties, so that show is unavailable. I'm going to have to re-record it. Hopefully the guest will be willing to do so. But um, in the meanwhile, since it's October, since it's Halloween time, coming up soon, I'm going to have to deliver at least two shows uh, this October. And uh, this is the first of those. And it features... Billy and I talking about a DC horror comic featuring the Phantom Stranger. I hope you all like it. But before we get into that, here is our Aaron segment. We haven't heard from Erin in a while, so I thought I'd, you know, I'd lead with her um, and see what she's been up to. So, have a listen, listeners, and thanks for coming back to the Long Box of Darkness. <laughs> And now for one of our most popular segments of the show, please join me as we welcome the Long Box of Darkness's over-enthusiastic apprentice, the mascot of mayhem, the sidekick of sadism, the tyro of terror, Miss Erin Lynn. Hi Erin, how have you been? Well, I've been busy, very, very busy, you know. Busy? Busy with what? Well, with a little something called life. Maybe you should get one. Ooh, busting my balls from the get-go. Oh, so you have some? What, what, some, what do you mean? Some balls? <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to horror-wise? Mm, does the Umbrella Academy on Netflix count as horror? Well, it has some definite horror elements, so I guess... Great, I'm taking that. I watched Umbrella Academy on Netflix. And? It was good. Um, would you maybe elaborate a little on that? It 
death, the end of the world, gorillas with human heads, murder, talking apes, robots, tentacles on the one's guy skins, etc., etc. Wow, sounds pretty great. Well, thanks for that recommendation. Now, what about what have you been reading? Junji Ito's Frankenstein. You you mean Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? No, I mean Junji Ito. Are you deaf? Hey, I'm just kidding. Come on, don't be so sensitive. Well, um, would you recommend it to the listeners? Yeah. So so that's it. Pretty much. How about you? <laughs> What have I been reading? Duh. <laughs> okay, let's see. I've been reading some. Jean Colin's Dracula. You mean Bram Stoker's Dracula? No, I mean Jean Colin. Are you deaf? Uh, oh my goodness! Well, there she goes, folks. Sorry about that, but don't worry. I'm sure, like a yo-yo on a string, or or maybe it's more appropriate to say like an eyeball still attached to a pliable optic nerve. Aaron will be back. And now onto our next bit of the show, the main segment, as it were, featuring my discussion with Billy Delicious. I hope you enjoyed, listeners. Welcome back, constant listeners, to the Long Box of Darkness. Today is a very special recording because I've got someone who I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time now. He's my co-host on the Into the Weird podcast, where we focus on Marvel Bronze Age horror and supernatural comics, and he's also the co-host of his own show, Magazines and Monsters, as well as the man behind the blog, MagazinesandMonsters.com. I want you all to give a big welcome to Mr. Billy Delicious. Hi, Billy. How's it going? Oh, it's fantastic, Herman. How are you? I'm great, thanks, man. Um, now this is the second show we've recorded together, so you know, for us, there's nothing new about this. But for the listeners, I quickly want to run through some preliminaries, making them aware of uh, who you are and your horror credentials, and you know um, how I met you. So. I'm quickly just going to ask you some interview-style questions. Nothing too serious, just to get some more info out of you and let the listeners be aware of you. Most of them might know who you are already because、um, I've spoken about you before, mentioned you、um, in the comments segments.、Uh, you've been interacting with the Long Box of Darkness for some time, and of course, we're all on Twitter together. So,、um, for some, it, this might be a needless introduction, but I'm still going to go through the motions. <laughs> <laughs> So Billy, first I'm gonna ask you. That's okay. Fire away. Okay, cool, man. Great.、Um, how did you get into horror? Like, what are your horror roots, and what first attracted you to horror in general? Well, my horror origins are definitely rooted in films,、uh, way before comics. I、uh, saw films like、uh, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead,、uh, films like that, Universal horror films. And those were my、uh, doorway to horror. Way, way, way before I ever got into horror comics,、uh, 
I was a, a huge monster kid and loved uh, watching horror films on TV. You know, everything from, like I said, the Universals, even to kaiju films. That was actually my doorway to uh, down the, the long box of darkness, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think most folks that I've spoken to, you know, have their roots in film. Where, where, where horror is concerned, you know, because if, if film's something you encounter first and you like the horror in that, then you're going to seek out other mediums, other forms of entertainment with horror in it. And comics is very accessible, especially for kids. I'm sure you'd agree, Billy, maybe especially so in the States, because I don't think mm. in the 80s or in the late 70s when you or I were, were little ones, it wasn't too hard to get a horror comic, but it was a little bit hard to get a horror film. To rent one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the other things, too, was an avenue for me, and it just popped into my brain right now, was I, I was uh, loved animation, you know, uh, on oh, television yeah. when I was a kid. And one of the episodes I'll never forget uh, when I was a kid, the, the Super Friends television show, there was an episode where Dracula was on it and actually changed <laughs> Superman into a vampire. <laughs> Oh, I never yes. saw that episode. Damn. Oh, man, that yes. sounds great. Wow. <laughs> now, okay, so your point being that there's horror everywhere you look. You just now have to, you know, be open to finding it, and you'll get to it. <laughs> even in animation. Yep, absolutely. Even in, even in kids' shows. Wow. Yep. Well, I mean, if you, if you look at it, Billy, the Warner Brothers animated, uh, you know, shorts, the cartoons from Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck and stuff, that was a lot of horror, actually. <laughs> A lot of mm -hmm. body horror, a lot of mutilation going on there. Not a lot of blood, but it, it was quite disturbing. So <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. Ani animation has a long history with horror, going way back to the late 1920s, 1930s. You know, There's definitely some, some sure. horrific stuff, uncensored things that filtered through. So, Billy, now that we know your very first uh, m meeting with horror, the genre itself... What are the first horror comics that you can remember picking up and reading and, and loving? Uh, the first horror comics I ever read was The Tomb of Dracula by Marvel Comics. Yeah. Uh, that was one that I just fell in love with. I actually got it through the Marvel Essentials, the, the black and white reprints. Mm. Um, I was at a show and they had the first three volumes and I bought them all and I read them multiple times i was just blown away by the story marv wolfman fantastic job what a great name for hard to wolfman <laughs> um, <laughs> and of course gene colin and tom palmer their artwork was just i had never seen anything uh, like that in print before that actually was you know kind of scary if you will or jarring it was just uh, oh i couldn't get enough of it and it still remains to this day my favorite horror comic yeah same here that's my uh, second favorite horror comic of all time, first being Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. But, you know, in terms of art, it's the best because I also, like you, Billy, I enjoy Gene Colan's art in black and white more than, than his color, you know, his uh, color stuff. So for me, I also picked up those essentials. And um, even though I read his uh, Tomb of Dracula as a kid, with you know, which was all colored, I enjoyed reading the black and white more. It gives you a more... Uh, of an ominous uh, kind of feeling and uh, it creates the mood, sets the atmosphere for horror, you know, with this black and white, um, you know, setting. 
that everything seems to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, set in. So I really know what you mean. That's a very atmospheric comic to to sink your teeth into, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> if, if you're a young <laughs> horror fan. Um, great. No, what a, that's a good origin when it comes to movies and, and comic books. And then, Billy, uh, today you and I are going to be discussing a comic both of us have in its original form. And it's a very old comic. Mine is in tatters. I don't know what your, your yours probably looks a little bit better than mine. Uh, but we're going to be talking about The Phantom Stranger from DC Comics, specifically The Phantom Stranger number 14. Uh, from August 1971. So uh, what does your copy look like? Where did you first pick that up? This was a copy that I picked up from uh, an actual uh, auction, an online auction. Right. Um, and it's in decent shape, but I am a huge fan of Swamp Thing and Thing, you know, Muck Monsters, The yeah. Heap. Oh, those, I don't know. There's just something about those comics that really piqued my interest. So when I saw this cover, I thought, I got to have that one. Yeah, yeah, because the cover prominently features a swamp monster rising out of the swamp, menacing someone. And in the background, you can sort of see the Phantom Stranger's silhouette. But Billy, when we discussed this off mic um, at another, you know, about a few weeks back, when we were prepping for the show, you mentioned a bit of a disappointment associated with the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they kind of, it's a bit of a switcheroo, you know, one of those things that, and they did this in comics in the 70s quite often where they would put something very shocking uh, on the cover. Marvel and DC both would do it. And then you really never saw that happen on the inside of the comic. And this this comic does it even doubly over on you, puts one over on you, puts two over on you. Not only do you not get that scene in the comic, but there's not even a swamp monster in the phantom stranger story. Cause there are two stories in the book, one with phantom stranger, one with Dr. 13. And <laughs> that's right. That's right. Is in the Dr. 13 story, not even in the phantom stranger. Yeah. Story. So, so think about it as a phantom stranger <laughs> fan. Let's say you're a little kid. You love the phantom stranger. You pick up this comic. You're, you're thinking this is the phantom stranger versus swamp thing or the phantom stranger versus mm-hmm. a similar muck monster. Because actually the monster drawn on the cover by Neil Adams he looks more like the Marvel Comics' Man-Thing than, than Swamp-Thing. For sure, for sure. Yeah, if I would have bought this when I was a kid when this first came out, I would have opened this up and I would have been like, I can't believe like they boned me. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're selling me Phantom Stranger versus this monster and it never happens. Never I would happens. have been mad. <laughs> exactly, man, exactly. Well, I mean, I uh, for me... The first time I picked this comic book up was in, well, picked up this comic, I should say, was in the well, I think it was the early 1990s when I was doing a lot of bin diving. You know, this was when I was still mm-hmm. in South Africa, and uh, comic stores had been spreading all across the country, but still not as many as in the states. Obviously, I mean, when I'm talking about all over, I mean probably like five cities had like maybe two stores each. So, uh, but I would, you know, we would travel around a lot. So I found this in one of the bins back issue bins at one of these stores and uh, I'm a big Phantom Stranger fan. This was the one of the earliest ones I had and then later on I picked up the earlier ones from I think I never I don't have the first four of this volume two of the Phantom Stranger. I think the first volume of the Phantom Stranger from 1952 which included six issues is almost impossible to get if I'm not mistaken because you know they're so old they're like they're like classic EC comics. You could probably still get some, get them, but it'll be expensive. 
if you want them in good condition. Oh, but, yeah. But this volume two, though, there's lots of that out there in back issues, and you can buy some online and eBay and so forth. So I, I picked up the run, but I never picked up the first four because they included reprints from the original 1950s series, right, Billy? Mm -hmm. So, you know, but from issue four or five onwards, you know, that's when, you know, new stories are introduced by uh, Robert Kaniger and then Lynn Wein and of course, the art was done by Jim Apero, who I'm a big fan of. Mm. This creative team really appeals to me. I don't know, Billy, what do you think about these guys? You obviously love Len Wein, I know, but, but what about the rest of the guys, Jim Apero and Tony DeZuniga? Yeah, I mean, you know, you were saying about how you were hunting these down uh, single issues many, many years ago. I was uh, almost exclusively a Marvel guy for a very long time. So I've really only heavily gotten into DC in probably the last 10 years. But I can tell you right now, Jim Aparo, to me, he's the DC equivalent to Gene Colan. Um, wow. Some people might think that's too much praise. Some people might say it's not enough. But either way, to me, personally, that's how I feel. I feel like you could have put Jim Aparo on Tomb of Dracula and I don't think it would have lost the beat. I think that still would have been an excellent comic because he's just an incredible artist. I mean, I have some of his Batman work too, and it's very moody, just like Gene Collins. It's very, you know, there's almost like a supernatural yeah. way. He even draws Batman. Yeah, I mean, he's actually my favorite Batman artist. Um, you know, coming off of Batman the Brave and the Bold, which was the only Batman comic I read regularly as a kid. Um, of course, I picked up a few issues of Detective Comics and Batman's you know, regular series too, but I used to collect The Brave and the Bold fairly regularly. And, you know, um, Jim Aparo is the... When I think Batman, it's Jim Aparo's Batman that I see in my head. But, um, you know, and then he did Batman and the Outsiders, um, you know, where you saw more of his superhero kind of style coming to the fore. But I always associated him with horror. You know, Billy, he did a lot of... Um, tale, uh, you know, short horror stories in House of Mystery and House of Secrets and Secrets of the Sinister House. Um, and, you know, he did this long run on The Phantom Stranger, um, which I, as a kid, you know, we're talking here early 80s, I only started picking up The Phantom Stranger comics, you know, at the very end. I think I, my first Phantom Stranger comic was number 31 or 32, you know, and then the creative team had already fallen off... Um, you know, it wasn't uh, Len Wein and Jim Aparo anymore. I can't remember who was the creative team then, but um, I, I still love the character of the Phantom Stranger. And then in the mid-80s, uh, the Phantom Stranger had his own Secret Origins issue. I think it was Secret Origins 17, if I'm not mistaken. And then, you know, they presented four different origins for him. For him. And then I was just blown away, like speculating, what is his actual origin? When in fact, it has never been established you know, where he comes from. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, because of that mysterious quality, I love the Phantom Stranger. But I associated him with Jim Aparo because Aparo for me is a horror artist from the early, you know, House of Mystery comics that I used to read. So, you know, right. he does horror, like you say, like Gene Cullen. And Cullen, in fact, did a great Batman too. So, you know, they've, they've yes. sort of got that link between the mm -hmm. two of them. Yeah, so, I somehow got my hands on a hardcover there might be two volumes of it, and I think I only have the first one where it's Gene Colan, Batman. 
yeah. uh, DC put out these, you know, specific to writers and, and artists, these hardcovers. And mm. there's a lot of, you know, Dracula or not even Dracula, maybe just in vampires in general. And I think yeah. Batman even gets turned into a vampire. It's he just, does. Oh, he does. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is great. So maybe that's why I have that you know, Jim Apparel, Gene Colan connection in my head because of the Batman connection. Well, you're right. I mean, both were, uh, they played with, with blacks very well because if you think about it, a lot of the times, Jim Apparel would do his own lettering, his own inking, you know, so he not mm-hmm. only penciled, but he also set the mood with the colors and he would use blacks very well and he played with negative space at times, which is great for horror writers to do. Uh, Gene Colan was the same. So even though their characters don't look uh, the same, they have a similar way of telling a story if it's a horror tale. So I definitely mm-hmm. associate them with each other as well. Not only are they from the same era, but you know they, they um, did more horror comics, at least in my mind, the comics that I read of theirs. Obviously, if you probably put their superhero stuff against their horror, Colin, you know, might... No, no, he he definitely did more superior stuff, you know, because he had some Doctor Strange issues he had. But, you know, 70 issues of Tomb of Dracula is nothing to sneer at. You know, that's that's quite a lot of horror. Uh, But with Jim Apero, he definitely did more superior style stuff, you know, later on in his life. Uh, You know, you need to earn a living. (laughs) And the 80s weren't a great time for horror unless you were Alan Moore and John Totalbin, you know, and Steve Bissett and those guys. Yeah, for sure. So, Billy, then you mentioned there's two stories in this issue. The first one, The Man with No Heart, features the Phantom Stranger, and that's written by Len Wein and art by Jim Apero. And um, then there's a second story featuring Dr. 13, the specter of the stalking swamp. That's the one that features the swamp monster that we see on the cover by Neil Adams. And the art for the second story is by Tony DeZuniga, who, of course, I always associate with Jonah Hex or... Iraq, Son of Thunder. Um, but he did a lot of those early horror tales in the DC horror mags, in the DC horror comics, I should say, Tony DeZuniga. So um, what's your history with him? I think the first time I saw his work was, if I'm not mistaken here, he may have inked some Conan. Ah, yeah. I believe that's the first place I saw him. And then a, a story here and there. Mm. where he would pencil as well. But I think his inks, it might have even been, yeah, it, I think, I almost feel like it, almost like it had to be Conan, maybe, yeah. but just as an inker. You're right. He worked for Marvel in the early 70s. He definitely did some Conan, um, uh, inking on some Conan issues. And, you know, he was part of the Filipino invasion, as they called it, you know, with, with Marvel mm-hmm. and DC um, getting these talented Filipino artists um, to come over to America and do some books. So, you know, they all did horror mostly because they weren't too comfortable with superheroes, uh, those guys. But eventually they transitioned into doing more mainstream books. But Tony DeZuniga, man, he create, co-created Jonah Hex and Iraq Son of Thunder. So, you know, he definitely made a mark um, on the 70s. But, you know, this is definitely the lesser of the two stories, the specter of the stalking swamp. Uh, Doctor 13, not one of my favorite characters. I don't know about you, Billy. How do you feel about Doctor 13? Yeah, he's not a character I'm super familiar with, but he's, I feel like he's very, just like more of a cookie cutter kind of character. There's nothing real uh, exciting about him. You know what I mean? He's just like, yeah. it's kind of one of those characters that gets lost in the the mix. And 
you know, kind of rightly so. <laughs> yeah, we'll get a bit more into his history when we discuss that story, but I feel exactly the same as you, Billy. He's not a character I particularly um, glom onto at any time. He's not my kind of person. Um, you know, uh, just because of his, you know, whole sh um, shtick, which is that he's debunking supernatural, you know, um, occurrences or, you know, people who claim to be... Um, of the supernatural bent and that is weird if you're in the dc universe proper i mean you've got superman flying around you've got all kinds of crazy things happening this is not a different universe this is not the vertigo universe you know apart from the main dc universe in the early 70s you're part of this universe where there are aliens there are people like zatanna you know <laughs> so yeah. he's still a, a, an unbeliever <laughs> he's still going out and debunking these things you know it just doesn't make sense yeah. for me no it doesn't at all and it's just it always seemed to the few stories i've uh seen with dr 13 it just seemed like he usually was an afterthought it was almost just like a character in a story to fill some page counts it wasn't ever anything you know even dc was behind you know with something that creators were doing it and i'm sure they were putting forth their best effort but they the, the creators weren't behind it either like wow you know boy i can't wait to write a star you know a story and <laughs> draw dr 13 because he's going places you know exactly exactly <laughs> i know what you mean well i i liked it a lot more when he was replaced on the phantom stranger comic with um a strip they called the spawn of frankenstein um mm -hmm. and that that one really i think mike kaluda did the art on that oh, i'm a big kaluda yeah. fan and I really like that strip more. It was very similar to, to Marvel's use of the monster of Frankenstein, you know, but um, I didn't mind that mm -hmm. because you had Frankenstein or patchwork monsters popping up all over. Uh, you know, you even had it in the pages of Swamp Thing, in the early Swamp Thing run mm -hmm. from Ween and Wrightson. You had a patchwork creature there and you had, and I, I love the, you know, the Frankenstein monster in all kinds of um, iterations, movies, comic books, novels. I can't get enough of him, just like I can't get enough of a swamp monster. So I prefer that strip uh, when they it eventually became, you know, uh, that when Doctor Thirteen was um, cancelled. Is the Phantom Stranger book? Am I thinking correctly as well that at some point the backups turned into uh, Black Orchid as well? Yes, you're correct. It did eventually yeah. become Black Orchid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I don't the stories. I don't know if I can remember the stories, but. I can't remember who the artist was, but I remember really enjoying the artwork on those stories. I I enjoyed it. I just can't remember it because it happened in the late 30s, I think. Um, and um, that was the, my first introduction to the character of Black Orchid. And I, I, I sort of, in the beginning, I thought no, but then I, I started to like it, probably also because of the art. I'll, I'll have a look and see who did the art on those. And then, Billy, um, we should probably give a brief introduction to the Phantom Stranger as a character just for listeners who don't know who the heck we're talking about here. Um, the Phantom Stranger basically is a, a character in the created to mirror radio shows from the 1940s, like uh, The Mysterious Traveler or uh, stuff like The Whistler. Um, these 1940s radio shows they had where there was this um, mysterious person who turns up at the nick of time with a warning or to help people in dire need. And then he would sort of solve the problem or he would offer advice 
to fix whatever mystery or, or life-threatening situation was happening at the time. And then he would disappear again, just as mysteriously at the end. So he was kind of almost like the shadow, except the shadow would more directly engage, you know, with, with the story itself. Whereas, you know, the mysterious traveler and the whistler and the phantom stra stranger, they were almost like, uh, you know, narrators or who then just briefly entered the story. To, mm -hmm. to nudge the main characters along. So the Phantom Stranger was probably created to mirror these guys from the radio shows. And he was created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino, who both had long runs on The Flash and Green Lantern in the 60s. And, um, you know, but it only ran for six issues. I think we mentioned this before, Billy. So it didn't really strike a nerve or, you know, um, appeal to the EC reading audiences at the time who were into blood and guts and, and horrific zombies and werewolf transformations and vampires, you know, ripping out juggler veins. <laughs> so this was yeah. pretty tame. It was pretty tame, you know, compared to that. So because of that, it only lasted six issues and then it was canceled. But then, as the story goes, Billy, in l the late 60s, um, Joe Orlando... Uh, also from EC fame. He was an artist on many EC titles. He was drafted to become the editor of DC's Mystery Line by Carmine Infantino at that point in time, who I think was the editor-in-chief then. So Joe Orlando was given the job as, as editor of the House of Mystery, Secrets of the Sinister House, House of Secrets, and so forth. And um, he was approached by young writer Len Wein because Len Wein apparently had been a big fan of the Phantom Stranger as a kid. And hmm. Len came came along and he asked Joe Orlando, could we please, you know, use this character, this favorite character of mine? I would love to write him. Could we use him in his own mag and, you know, in a similar vein to maybe House of Mystery or something like that? So um, Joe Orlando went with the idea. He loved the idea, but it turned out that the first four issues were reprints of the original stories. And um, I, for reasons unknown at the time, I think it was because they couldn't get a permanent writing team and artist team on, on the book. So they kind of had to make deadlines where they had already committed to publishing the, the comic. But, you know, after the first four issues, it, it became a more stable comic with new material being introduced by Robert Kaniger and then eventually uh, writer Len Wein. And then they got Jim Apero on the book and from... You know, thereon it you know became history, Billy, because um, it sold very well. So it lasted till uh, for forty-one issues, and a lot of great DC horror tales came out of the Phantom Stranger book. So he would still act in this volume two of the Phantom Stranger. He would still act as an intermediary sometimes or a narrator, um, sometimes taking a backseat to events. But in the best stories, at least in my opinion, he would directly interact with the characters, as we see in this issue that we're going to be discussing, this Phantom Stranger issue 14. So, um, Billy, that's a little bit about the Phantom Stranger's publication history. What do you know of the Phantom Stranger as a character? Like, uh, what are his powers or, or, like, what is he known for? Um, if I can put it like that. What are some of his trademark, um, uh, you know, abilities? Well, he's one of these guys where it almost feels like sometimes from writer to writer, things change a little bit. Like you were saying, yeah, you enjoy him where he's more of a hands-on 
kind of guy, and I do as well, because some people write him as this just um, almost like Marvel's you know, The Watcher, where he just kind of shows up to say a few things yeah. and then, you know, yeah. you know, be cryptic and or, or give you a warning about stuff, and then he's gone. But, I mean, they have people have written him where he's just, you know, uh, he's, you know, firing bolts of energy and he can time travel and he can, you know, yeah, he can almost like dispel, you know, like you're saying about Dr. 13, you know, trying to, uh, get people, you know, uh, point out charlatans who are, you know, saying they have magic <laughs> powers, but they really don't. Yeah. And I mean, but I mean, Phantom Stranger, he's one that can, you know, dispel magic and stuff like that. But he's, you know, He's very well, like Len Wein, I don't think that guy gets enough credit because when he writes a story, you don't, I don't ever get bored with a Len Wein story. It's either fun or, you know, it's really something to make you think. But the Phantom Stranger, yeah, he's all over the place with powers. He, you know, sometimes he has these godlike powers where, you know, mm. and no one short of the specter can, <laughs> yeah, can curb you him, know, yeah. yeah. And other times it's just, you know, you even see it in some of these issues of, his own title here where you know he gets you know hoodwinked or you know knocked out by just you know yeah uh, you know random everyday people but then usually in the end you know he he can overcome them but it's just i think it, as the character goes through the hands of different creators some creators either had no idea what to do with him yeah. so they had him all over the place or they you know needed a um you know, a deus ex machina for their story. So, oh, let's use him. And that's that's how he kind of fell. Yeah, like you say, Billy, it depends on the writer. I just find that some things are are constant. You know, some things, some abilities he always seems to have is his omniscience. Like, kind of like, like you said, the Marvel's Watcher. He knows everything about everyone at any given time. So mm -hmm. he's kind of like us, the reader. You know, as, as comic book fans, we know exactly the inner lives, the, the thoughts... You know the past, the future of of the characters. He might not know the future, but um, he seems to be able to to have that ability to I immediately impart any knowledge which should be unattainable to him, and yet he has it. Yeah. So this omniscience he always seems to have, and then he seems to be able to teleport fairly consistently. I mean, he can not teleport per se, but he can show up anywhere at any time, <laughs> regardless yeah. of uh, you know uh, planet border, country, boundaries, even, you know, different times. Like you say, you can travel to uh, different time periods and uh, he can take you to the future. He can take you back. Uh, it, he seems to have that power fairly consistently. But And then he seems to be immortal. He can't really be killed. Um, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this issue, Billy, is the fact that he is immortal and his immortality actually becomes the sort of MacGuffin in this story mm -hmm. um now just to get into the issue itself the cover like we mentioned is by neil adams and i i think this is a mm. great cover this is a stunning cover oh. what do you think billy it, it's incredible it to me i i have lately been buying a lot of uh superman issues from the late 60s and early 70s where neil adams did some superman covers and they're they're good don't get me wrong they're they're fantastic stuff but to me I think this is one of his best simply because he didn't do a ton of horror, but when he did do it, it was, I, 
incredible. Yeah. It's just great cover. It's great cover. Yeah. And at first I thought the cover was done by Jim Aparo because if you look at the, uh, the cover for the listeners is basically like we mentioned before, the Phantom Stranger in the background in a swamp. You only see his white silhouette, a white silhouette, very strange, but it sort of uh, amplifies his ghostly uh, nature. And then you have this massive man thing like swamp creature with this gaping maw, right? Billy coming up mm-hmm. from out of the mire. And then there's these two lovers, I, I presume them to be sprawling on this um, patch of dry ground in the swamp. The, the girl's got her head on the backpack and she's caressing this guy. But the guy's the first <laughs> to, to spot this <laughs> swamp monster. You know, so he's, he's very upset. And the way that his head is drawn with that look of shock, you know, and that looks very mm-hmm. apparel-like to me. But it's all Neil Adams. And this muck monster, man, wow, Billy, he's incredible. What do you think of him? Oh, it's fantastic. But first, back to that couple. I oh, got to okay. think to myself, what kind of what kind of taste in men does this woman have? She gets, what did, what did this guy say? I'm going to take you to the swamp to make out. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, when we get to that Dr. 13 story, that's kind of almost exactly what happens, right? Oh, uh, yeah. This couple heading off into the swamp for some canoodling. We don't know, but that's what it yeah. seems to be. But I like the swamp monster's face. You know, mm. he's got these huge red globes for eyes. They almost mm-hmm. look wet and shiny and, and popping out of its eye sockets. And then he's got yeah, to these me, claws. There's there's nothing. You couldn't. You can't look at this cover and say, well, if they would have done this or that, it would have been better. It, it's perfect. The monster yeah. is perfect. The woman having her back to the monster and not being aware of it. The man who you know has his back to the, to the reader. But like you said, you can tell there's a little bit of uh, white space around around the uh the head to signify that the man is in shock by seeing this monster uh and then whoever made the decision neil adams or whatever to 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 just stark white for the phantom stranger i think that was a great choice because if you would have had him in his you know dark blue you know his normal you know garb and colors i just i don't think it would have worked on this cover it really sets this cover it almost makes it look like there's some kind of ghost or apparition in the background and you you really have to you know if you're just walking by and you're not a huge phantom stranger fan and you see this cover you don't know what's going on here it's very very shocking it stands out yeah i agree that's a great point wow uh i wasn't thinking like that as aesthetically as you did billy but that makes total sense um for me the the look of the phantom stranger himself you know dressed in this blue fedora with this you know, blue and white suit with this gold medallion around his chest and then this cloak with this high collar, he would be very incongruous in a setting like a swamp, you know? So it's like mm-hmm. you said, you can't put him in this mostly greenish cover with some, some earthy colors. You can't let him no. uh, wear his full attire with his full colors coming to the foreground because it would definitely not work. So you're right, someone possibly Neil Adams made the right call there and it turned out yep. to be brilliant yeah this this car covers perfect I give it a five out of five um, for for a score because you can't get better nope so Billy then um, I'm gonna give a brief synopsis on the first story for the second story of dr. 13 I'm not gonna do that we can discuss that one you know at our leisure 
but for the first uh, tale of the phantom stranger which is the best story in my mind in this volume um, i'm just quickly mm -hmm. going to tell the readers what they can uh, expect so readers if you want to pick this cover uh, the story up and if you want to read it before you listen to our discussion it's going to be hard to find you could possibly get it in the dc showcase collection of the phantom stranger the first one Mm -hmm. But um, if not, DC Universe might have it, the DC Universe app. I'm not sure, though, uh, because I haven't checked. I apologize for that. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think comics, Comicology has it. Comicsology has it. So um, I'm just going to say spoilers. I'm going to post some images on the blog, longboxofdarkness.com, and then you can follow along um, that way. Um, if you're interested, but don't worry, there, there's definitely some spoilers at the end, right, Billy? Because this is a horror tale, so yeah. it's all about the the ending, <laughs> mm -hmm. the payoff. Yeah, the denouement. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here we go with the synopsis. The Phantom Stranger is summoned by magical means to the mansion of the wealthy but ailing Broderick Rune. There, he is trapped in a pentagram and knocked out with mystic fumes. It turns out that Broderick Rune is in need of a new heart, and he has decided upon the Phantom Strangers. Assisted by his Hindu manservant and amateur sorcerer, Rashid, Rune is rushed to the hospital along with his comatose victim. Dire surgery is performed, and the heart of a supernatural being is transplanted into the breast of Broderick Rune. Time passes, and Rune wakes up from a dream where the stranger is menacing him. The surgeon and Rashid are there to greet him as he shrugs off the effects of the nightmare. He asks about the stranger's body, and Rashid informs him that it was disposed of. The story then cuts to two hired thugs who are carrying the stranger's body wrapped in blankets onto a pier, where they attempt to throw it into the water. They are horrified when nothing falls from the blankets. The phantom stranger appears behind them, frightening the wits out of them as his footsteps fade into the mist-shrouded night. From then on, Broderick Rune finds himself haunted by the stranger everywhere he turns. He seeks to escape by traveling to an old mansion in Europe in the company of Rashid and the surgeon. The stranger follows them even there. After a failed attempt to trap the stranger with magic once more, Rune flees from the house only to meet his nemesis on a windswept bluff where he is subjected to the increasingly deafening sound of his new supernatural heart. When Rashid and the doctor finds him, the stranger has departed. The doctor declares Rune dead in a horrifying whisper, revealing that the man's purloined heart is missing. And that concludes the synopsis. So, very eerie, right, Billy? And a very good oh. supernatural tale. It's incredible. This is a, such a great story. Again, Len Wein, you know, we just lost him. What last year or was yeah. it the year before? Now I, I can't keep track. But he, he just—he's one of those guys that, yeah, he's—he doesn't get enough credit. You know, his name should definitely be up there with some of the best writers. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm horrified. Such such a great story. Yeah, I'm horrified to to find that most people, most modern comic book readers, uh, remember him better as an editor. Now he mm -hmm. was a great editor, but for me, his writing far outshines his his editing uh, skills. Uh, I mean, his editing yeah. skills being brilliant already. I just love his stories much more. Yeah, because to me, he, he did a great job. And of course, a power too with his artwork of 
you know, showing you a lot, but still not showing just a little bit. So then you have to use your imagination uh, to fill in a couple of the blanks that are are very uh, horrific, to be quite honest with you. Because like you said, at the end of this one, you know, I just imagine in my my get my brain cooking here and think, you know, he, he found uh, that man with his heart and pretty much ripped it out of the guy. Yeah. Yes. You that's know? what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just, it's great. It's, oh, you can't even imagine. Like I said, they do a good job of showing you what you need to see, but then also leaving a little bit to the imagination too, that you can just run wild with it. Yeah. No, that's so essential to a horror tale. I think Billy, especially of the anthology kind, which you found in the, you know, these, DC Comics, uh, you know, series like House of Mystery and um, House of Secrets, you need some, you know, um, some part of the story to be mysterious so that the reader, like you can say, like you said, fill in the blanks. Otherwise, it's too on the nose. It's they, they show too much and that that ruins it. You know, you don't want to see too much. You want to kind of think about it and think, geez, this is so terrible what must have happened you don't want to see it all the time you know obviously there are some comics where you do want if the artist is of that particular type where you do want to see blood you do want to see you know guts spilling on the ground and stuff like that but this is not that kind of tale this is the the tale of the sinister kind of variety like the outer limits or you know um boris karloff's thriller or, or maybe the phantom zone would be a good mm-hmm. um comparison so, you know, and then you appreciate the story that much more. So, Billy, as we head into this comic, I love the bad guy. I love Broderick Rune, how Jim Apero draws him. He's kind of like a James Bond villain. You know, he's, he's wearing this this fancy, uh, you know, um, robe almost like this this uh, sleep attire, you know, sitting in his in his apartment waiting for the Phantom Stranger. And he's got this little pug. <laughs> instead of a cat like <laughs> like like Blofeld from 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 James Bond he's got this little <laughs> pug that he's stroking and you know he sits with his legs crossed on this chair in this very evil type you know mastermind villain way um what do you think about him he's he's a caricature for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah he sh- he should have a a mustache so he could sit there twirling it um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing i thought when i saw this was Oh boy, I didn't realize there was an unofficial crossover between Marvel and DC in 1971. I thought I didn't realize the Phantom Stranger ripped his heart, uh, ripped out the heart of the Kingpin. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. He looks like the Kingpin, a little bit smaller than the Kingpin, but definitely the rest. It's similar, all similar. Yeah, the Kingpin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> you know, from from the Daredevil series on yes. Netflix. He's he's definitely a striking lookalike. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got this great, uh, you know, page where the Phantom Stranger is trapped in this pentagram, and these mists swirl around him, and he succumbs to their effects. Now it turns out we learned that this Broderick Rune guy, he's got this Rashid Hindu sorcerer working for him, and that's how he was able to affect this magic and trap the stranger. And you know, this was done years later in Neil Gaiman's comic The Sandman, where. In the very first issue, uh, you know, uh, this man who had planned to trap death, the sorcerer, he also prepared this pentagram, and then he ended up trapping Dream instead. Um, and this reminded me of that. Now, I was always thinking maybe Neil Gaiman got his inspiration for the first Sandman story in the late 80s from this story. Because um, Neil Gaiman has 
you know, mentioned in the past that he was a huge Phantom Stranger fan. That's why he used him in the Books of Magic, you know, to school the young sorcerer Timothy Hunter in the magical universe, you know, the magical side of DC. So that's just something I wanted to mention, Billy. I don't know if you're um, familiar with The Sandman, the series that DC did in the late 80s that became the Vertigo series eventually and sort of jump-started Vertigo. Are you familiar with that, with The Sandman? I'm not. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with that series, but I can tell you I am a firm believer in that everything someone, you know, writes or draws in some even some very small way or oblique way, they they've been affected by uh other things that they've seen and read. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's I, I almost feel like you know, like you, you say, it's you you're always gonna be even if you think, Boy, I have this great original idea it definitely was uh, an idea that, no matter how original you think it is, was definitely shaped uh, by a lot of other things. So that could definitely be possible, whether it was you know conscious or uh, unconscious by uh, uh, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you, yeah. Um, I do that in my daily life, too. <laughs> <laughs> we might be doing that on Twitter as well, Billy, if you <laughs> oh, yeah. remember yeah, a discussion yeah, we I had. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I just, I, I love Len Wein's writing on this. I, you've got the, the introduction by the Phantom Stranger where he, he's in his role as narrator where he introduces the story, right, Billy? And I'm going to read a bit. Mm-hmm. He says, Consider life a commodity so precious that it is measured, not in cents and dollars, but in minutes and days, the greatest of all gifts, given to each man only once, which, if cheaply bartered or poorly spent, can never be regained. Or can it come walk with me, the phantom stranger, to a place where questions are shrouded in mystery and answers are lost in the night? Now that is some really good Rod Serling type shit over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Brilliant, yep. brilliant bit of narration and all written by Ween. Nobody can say this guy isn't a good writer. No, no. I mean, everybody has their their off days, but I just think he's... This, this story, you know, it's, what is it? You know, not even that many pages, probably 15 pages or 14 pages, something like that. But it's it's a very strong story that, you know, it almost reads like uh, a, a short story. Yeah. You know, like a novel, a short story novel. It, it really does. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, um, then you've even got, you know, other examples later on. But my favorite, and this is the last one I'm going to quote, Billy, is when... Um, they've captured the the Phantom Stranger and they're on they're in the hospital and surgery is being performed where they're transplanting the Phantom Stranger's heart into uh, Broderick Rune's body. You've got this um, caption reading, this uh, narration caption reading, a hospital operating room, the gladiatorial arena of modern times. <laughs> <laughs> A sterile circus where white-smocked warriors pit skill and scalpel against the raging lion of death. (laughs) Wow, that is... Ween, man, he's brilliant. I'm telling you, I can't get over that. The fact that he compares, you know, an operation with gladiators, you know, fighting in the Circus Maximus. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, you don't get writing like that anymore. You just... There was... There was something about a lot of those people, you know, that were writing and creating at that time that just you, you don't read things like that anymore. And it's it's, you know, I miss it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You see, the thing is, these days, 
um, caption boxes are out, you know, narration is kept to a minimum because people say that, okay, that's needless. It's too much exposition. And I guess I can see where, you know, in some cases that, that might be true. But, you know, I don't mind those things. I, I learned a lot of vocabulary and, you know, cool phrases from those, you know, that kind of writing style. So I want it yeah. back. Yeah. Every now absolutely. and then you'll see that, you know, um, coming up in comics again, but that's more like they're using it as a pastiche or, you know, uh, when they're deliberately doing a modern comic in a uh, Bronze Age or Silver Age style. Uh, you know, so for them, for modern comic book writers, there has to be a purpose, you know, to the the narration. And in their minds, there wasn't any purpose to these you know, uh, old style narration boxes from way back when. But I think, you know, that's what made comics comics. It's like saying, okay, let's take away the sound effects. No, you can't do that. You know, let's take away the narration boxes. It's almost the same for me. You know, I yeah. I, I love those. Uh, it really shows you the, the writer's um, prose chops, you know, whether he's good at writing a bit of prose. Yeah, I mean, and that's, to, for me, that last page is really you know the climax of the story is really just so good i mean it's six panels but the panel layout is just incredible you get one you know you know long rectangled shaped panel at the top where the phantom stranger is coming for his heart and then three smaller panels underneath it, and rune is going crazy because the heart just keeps beating louder 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 he's yeah. like it drops to the ground and yeah, you know, like we said, you don't see what happens, but you know, obviously, the stranger ripped out his, heart. his own heart. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's crazy. It's such good. Oh, it's it's incredible. Like I said, it's just you can't. Uh, other than something that would be very nitpicky, you really can't find anything wrong with this story. It's it's really be, be, the scripting and the art. It is a perfect story. Yeah. Now that you mentioned one of my favorite panels, Billy, is that panel on the last page with the Phantom Stranger standing at the top, uh, top sort of uh, juxtaposed against the lightning and the storm. And this mm-hmm. is a classic trope going probably way back to Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty or I don't know when in film this happened the first time. But this is, you know, two enemies meeting on a cliff or, or in this case on a bluff. And then the final confrontation in the rain with lightning striking the background. This is, it's so cinematic. And, you know, then mm-hmm. uh, the sound effects, which was all lettered by uh, Apero with this heart beating, like lub-dub, 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 lub-dub. <laughs> That's basically the sound effect. Mm. And it gets louder and louder, driving this man mad, possibly killing him. You know, that, that part was a horror ending that I've never actually seen. You know, so yeah. even though it ends predictably with the Phantom Stranger getting his heart back, but, you know, it's still done in such a unique way. So two thumbs up, right, Billy, for both of us. Absolutely. And, yeah, for this first story, The Man with No Heart. So, Billy, um, we're going to take a little bit of a break and then we'll quickly do a very short discussion of the second story, The Spectre of the Stalking Swamp. I don't think we've got too much to say other than a, a few disappointing comments. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the art was great for me, though. That's that's a plus. But um, even though it's written by Len Wein, I think um, uh, the cover sort of led us to believe one thing and we didn't get what we were promised. So that's that's possibly why this is my least favorite of the two. But um, don't go away, listeners. We'll be back with that in a short moment. 
anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. <laughs> All right, we're back, and Billy and I are just about to start our uh, summary and discussion of the second story in the Phantom Stranger comic, The Spectre of the Stalking Swamp. Now, Billy, we've spoken about Doctor 13, the Ghost Breaker, earlier in the show. This is a typical Doctor 13 story, I think, from the the many that I've read, I'm sad to say, because you kind of like find him in a lot of these early tales of the Phantom Stranger. And I'm, I don't know about you, Billy, but I'm loath to put down a comic after just reading the first tale. I, I have to kind of finish the comic book if it's an anthology type um issue like the phantom stranger was what about you do you sometimes skip uh stories in comics or how do you feel about no that? yeah no I'll, I'll read it straight through um and if there's you know an anthology book where there's two three four stories and only one or one or two of them interest me i'll go back and reread those one or two and i won't read the other ones again but i always definitely at least read it straight through you know yeah just you... kind of get a gauge on everything yeah, you read it at least once. And especially this is, again, written by Len Wein, art by Tony DeZuniga, who did a great job, I think. I really liked his art. Of course, it's nowhere near as good as Apero, but DeZuniga's got his own style that I that appeals to me. You know, it's this very 70s kind of um, comic book style that I kind of associate with sword and sorcery more. Like you mentioned, you know, he did some Conan uh, inking on Conan the Barbarian. But, um, you know, I like this uh, story for, for the art. And the, and actually, Len Wein's story was pretty tight. You know, um, it's just the reveal of the swamp monster disturbed me. So, Billy, I'm going to let you run with this one. We're not, we don't have a synopsis for this one. We're just going to talk about it. Roughly, what is the story here? Well, I mean, you have uh, a secluded uh, community. And it starts out like a horror story where, you know, you see a, a creature carrying a woman through the swamp and then yeah. a guy tells uh, a sheriff tells another guy a story about how someone went missing and, you know, it turned into this swamp creature basically. And, you know, you, you come through the story and there are some, like you said, some good artwork in there. And the story, as far as the script goes, isn't bad. But uh, when you get to the part where, you know, you see the city out in the middle of the swamp, which is kind of a, a little far-fetched, <laughs> to say the least. And then you see this swamp monster sitting on, like, some sort of throne almost, and a sheriff there then saying, like, he's going to arrest somebody there. <laughs> and then the swamp monster takes off his mask, and it's revealed that it's just a guy. It's like, yeah, oh, boy. Yeah, so that's, that's it's just, disappointing. It's disappointing. It is. It's very disappointing. It's like, even if it would have stayed a swamp monster, but like you said, with Dr. 13, he was always trying to prove that 
these things weren't real, so you had to go the route of it not being real. But that's why we said he's kind of a disappointing character. Yeah, you overall. see, he's killing the vibe for me, Doctor 13. I want to mm -hmm. see him proven wrong in every single story he's in. And the fact that he is proven right at the end, that he was right about this being a hoax, about this not being any supernatural monster, that bugs me. Right, Billy? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, okay, he's right again. Um, and uh, the, a typical Doctor 13 story where he debunks this supernatural event. But, um, you know, uh, we, we get introduced to his wife, Marie, here. And I don't even know why she's along for the ride. She serves no purpose other than later on sort of saving his fat from the fire. You know, uh, she does, mm -hmm. does serve a purpose at the very end. But in most Doctor 13 stories, she's just kind of like, have you ever seen the movies The Conjuring? Conjuring 1 and 2. No, I have not. Okay, it's James Wan who directed Aquaman. He's got these um, this franchise that he's uh, this horror franchise that he's established about this couple who are like ghost breakers. They're like Doctor Thirteen and his wife Marie. They go around the country, mm. you know, uh, investigating haunted houses and the like, and proving that it's not you know um, uh, true and not real. And um, you know, they eventually do encounter supernatural things, which sort of makes you feel okay. This this is what I want because I'm watching this. To be scared. I'm not watching this movie to have the folks, the investigators, turn out to be right. You know, that just ruins mm -hmm. the horror. And Doctor yeah. 13 ruins the horror every single time. <laughs> yeah. I just, I wonder who was the editor of these books? Was it Joe Orlando? Still Joe Orlando, yes. Yeah. Because I'm thinking to myself, if you're the editor of this book, you have this great phantom stranger tale that's all about the supernatural mm. and it being a reality. And then the backup story you put in here is one that <laughs> is a character that just debunks all these things. Like uh, they seem very opposite of each other. So I don't. I think wow. I don't, why would you put these two stories in the same book together? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know the fact that um, Joe Orlando, you know, he's very well versed in horror. I think it might not have been his. I mean, ultimately, it must have been his choice to include these stories, but. You know, because of the character of Doctor 13 being established as a ghostbreaker from his appearances in Star Spangled comics before, they might not have been able to change his character. If you know what I mean, uh, Billy, they might mm -hmm. not have uh, been able to get the okay from Carmine Infantino to say, okay, this time we're really going to introduce some horror in the supernatural vein of DC. Um, and it does happen later on when he, in fact, gives up. You know, uh, he gives up and... Uh, in a later issue where he decides, okay, the Phantom Stranger is legit. <laughs> yeah. That actually happens. But then after that, we don't see Doctor 13 anymore. He's replaced by the Spawn of Frankenstein tale. And I was happy about that. But my point is, they might have been constrained by the fact that they had to stay true to the character. Which is that yeah. in every tale, he had to be right. He had to eventually use his analytical mind to prove the hoax. Kind of like the Scooby-Doo gang. <laughs> um, which is what that's all about. But I would argue that a DC horror comic is not about that at all. You know, it doesn't give you that same sense of, okay, when you're watching a Scooby-Doo cartoon, that's what you expect. You know, you expect yeah. the monster not to be real. Here, it's something different. But, you know, I think this guy's even more of a Bond villain than Broderick Ruin in the first story. <laughs> what do you think, Billy? <laughs> yes. I, well, I think you're on, you're on the right track there. That second story was it was a Scooby Doo episode. Like the sheriff might as well have pulled that guy's mask off and been like, "Oh, it's 
it's Professor Adams, not the swamp creature. <laughs> no. I mean, it's like <laughs> it, it, it basically was a Scooby-Doo episode. It was just it was out there. It was just a, a, you know, a city in the middle of a swamp that's like under a dome. And there's a swamp creature, but it's really a guy. I, I just wow. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, really Oof, crazy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And not crazy fun either. There's crazy fun, and then there's crazy not so much fun. And that's what this one was. Exactly. I mean, there's like you say, too much happening. There's hypnosis thrown in there. He's got a gun that shoots fungus, you know. And then at the <laughs> end, the swamp itself rises up and and tears down his domed city, which he you know established to create a new civilization that's why he kept kidnapping young folks in the swamp you know to hypnotize mm -hmm. them and breed a new race of humans and you know it, you're not sure at the end what happened was it the nuclear waste of his you know atomic motors that caused the swamp to mutate and and pull down the dome or was it the actual swamp itself mother nature just saying enough you're never sure what happened it's just he too yeah, maybe illogical. Was it some kind of social commentary or something in this one? Is that what they were shooting for? It's very hard to tell <laughs> what they were really, what kind of point they were trying to relay in this comic. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Billy. But, you know, um, Len Wein did have some shining moments here. There's a, a fair amount of action in this story, way more than you'd normally find in a Doctor 13 story, and I appreciate that. But, Billy, I think it bears mention that, you know, at this point in time, 1971, a lot of swamp monsters in comics. If you think about it, this is August, this issue. And again, Len Wein had a swamp monster as one of his sort, you know, antagonist, not a protagonist this time, but an antagonist. In the same year of 1971, in May, um, you know, the swamp thing was introduced in House of Secrets. Or no, no, sorry, the man thing came first. Man thing yep. was introduced Savage in Tales. Savage Tales, number one. Mm -hmm. And then July of this year, a month before this comic, um, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson introduced Swamp Thing in House of Secrets. So uh, everything was, you know, uh, centered around these swamp monsters. Both companies were vying for their foot in the swamp, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, and when they you when you hear interviews with these guys and they were like, oh, no, we didn't know. We weren't, you know, copying each other and this and that. I, I'm not going to say they were copying each other, but boy, to have two, three or more Swamp Monsters come out in comics in the same, you know, three or four month stretch, that's a little too coincidental for me. <laughs> same, same here, same here. So luckily this turned out to not be a Swamp Monster, but, you know, that sort of killed the horror. So we were both in agreement that we didn't like it because of that fact. But if it was a real Swamp Monster, like Swamp Thing, it would have also made no sense because then there's two Swamp Monsters walking around in DC. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a bit too much but overall Billy um, since we're on the long box of darkness we're using a rating system and the rating system we're using this week is uh, beating hearts the beating heart rating system <laughs> because of the heart that was torn out of the phantom stranger's body so how many bloody beating hearts would you give the Phantom Stranger story, The Man with No Heart. For me, it's a it's perfect score. Five out of five. Okay, I'm definitely with you there. I give that a five out of five. How about the um, a Swampster <laughs> story, which is what Len Wein calls <laughs> the monster, the Swampster, um, the stalking swamp? Uh, I'm going to have to say two out of five. And I mean, maybe I could do two or three, but I'm going to do a two out of five just because it was just... I just think 
it was an uh, an awful pairing against hmm. the first story. The first story makes it very, very pale. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm gonna give it a two point five out of five bloody beating hearts. If you've got one two hearts on your chopping block and you've got a third and you want slice it right through the aorta, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'll give this one. So. <laughs> but uh, Billy, no, I'm uh, definitely happy that we got to this comic because it's one of my favorite uh, Phantom Stranger issues. Um, I've got about three or four um, that I still want to discuss in the future, but this one, I'm glad you chose it because this is definitely my favorite of the bunch. And it was such a surprise to me when you sent me the 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 picture on Twitter of, of this issue that you wanted to talk about because I was happy, but also I was uh, shocked because a lot of things have been happening lately which seemed like serendipity where, you know, we don't actively sub uh, we don't consciously plan to talk about stuff but then you know it happens and this was the f if if i had to talk about a phantom stranger comic on the long box of darkness on my own this would have been the one i picked so the fact that you picked mm -hmm. it you know means there's some kind of a uh, psychic rapport happening here but <laughs> that doctor 13 <laughs> will have to debunk <laughs> yeah i'm sure one of us he'll he'll pull a mask off one of us and <laughs> reveal we're just uh you know regular people not a real uh monster <laughs> that's right well billy i want to um ask you before we sign off here um for some recommendations to the listeners that's normally what i do when i have a guest on the long box of darkness anything you might have been reading old or new that you might think the listeners would enjoy um could you mention some of the stuff you've recently been reading and that you might that you think horror-minded uh folks might find uh, value in well, along the lines of this Phantom Stranger, if you are looking to even dip your toe into the water of DC uh, 70s horror especially, it can be a little challenging because there was so much uh, material. But if you don't want to break the bank, you know, they have uh, those showcase books where it is black and white. And uh, like you and I talked about, black and white for horror is, uh, I think it's the way to go. I mean, yeah, there are some good material out there that's color but the black and white is just so primal and so you know raw it's it's great and those showcase books that are all black and white i have house of mystery and phantom stranger and that's actually how i read this story the first time before i bought the single issue and they're fantastic get those and you'll you'll love them they're just incredible dc did a fantastic job putting those together and they do really good they have an index in them where it goes issue by issue and tells you who the creative team was and you know what when they were put out and everything when they were released it's just they did a really good job with those i think they actually did a better job with those you know hmm. early on than marvel did with their essentials even as far as giving you some extra information and stuff in them yeah no i agree. oh wow that's a good recommendation billy yeah um you'll definitely find that those those um collections um, on the net, uh, even though they might not be on Amazon, um, you know, it'll be easy to track down, I'm sure. They're not that hard to find. No, I mean, and if you're in the United States or, I mean, even in the UK, there are shows quite often, and you can usually find them at shows for 8 to $10 a piece, which is so cheap. I mean, you get 25, 30 issues yeah. in those books. Typically, that's incredible amount of, you know, uh, material for that money. Yeah. Billy, thanks for the recommendation, man. Um, I'm going to mm -hmm. recommend three books which I think you might like 
um, and the listeners, hopefully. <laughs> and <laughs> it all pertains to what we've been talking about here. First off, I'm going to recommend a book I mentioned earlier. If you um, can find this book um, at a show or back issue bin diving, you should definitely pick it up because it's got great art. And this is the Secret Origins uh, issue I mentioned uh, featuring the Phantom Strangers, uh, four different possible Secret Origins. And this is, um, I said earlier, it's Secret Origins number 17. Um, I was in error. This is Secret Origins number 10 from January 1987. You can find it on Comixology. It's, it's probably available on the DC Universe app as well, since they have the same uh, comics that are available on Comixology. And um, this offers up, like I say, four different origins uh, of the Phantom Stranger, none of which might be true. But it's by uh, Alan Moore and Joe Orlando, Dan Mishkin and Erling Colon, Paul Levitz and Luis Garcia Lopez, and um, Jane Barr and uh, Jim Apero. So, you know, you've got, or I should say Mike W. Barr and Jim Apero. So you've got these four amazing creative teams offering up their take on what possibly could be the Phantom Stranger's origin. And I'm not going to give anything away because I want you listeners to read it. Billy, I want you to read it too. But those are some wild, wacky origins that all strangely make sense. And I can't choose my favorite among those four. <laughs> what issue did you say that was? Secret um, Origins, which one? Ten. Yeah, Secret Origins issue 10. It's got this cover where the Phantom... Str There's four or three different versions of the Phantom Stranger on the cover. Actually, four, because there's his ghostly white silhouette in the background, and he's standing in this room suspended in the cosmic... Uh, or in the cosmos. And um, he's, uh, you know, standing up against the wall. He's standing, you know, upside down. And then you've got the top of the issue saying this is a spin-off from the Legends uh, miniseries that John Byrne did, Chapter 6. Uh, because I think I, yeah. I think I actually have that issue. I'll, oh, I have, I'll have to dig it out, but I think I actually have that one because I'm looking at it right now online, and the first story is Mike Barr and Jim Aparo. Yeah. And, I mean, listen to these names. The second story, Paul Levitz and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the, oh, unreal. Art, the art is incredible. You should see this, especially the Garcia Lopez story, but the Aparo story is my favorite. <laughs> Um, all of them did a, did stellar work on this issue. So listeners and Billy, you know, reread that and listeners pick that up if you don't have it already. That gives you a great bit of insight into the Phantom Stranger. Although, remember, this might not be true. <laughs> None of these origins <laughs> are canon. This is just imagined or origins by these writers. And then, Billy, the second one is also a single issue that I want the listeners to pick up. And that is one of DC's Who's Who issues. Um, specifically, um, okay, well, if you're interested in Dr. 13, <laughs> you can pick up, you can pick up the, the who's who issue. Okay. This is not part of the recommendation though, listeners. I just have this who's, who's who issue in front of me. This is the who's who issue, um, volume seven. And this gives you a bit of Dr. 13, um, and some great art by Tony de Zuniga. Okay, I just wanted to mention that, but this is not actually the Who's Who issue that you should go for first. The very first one you should go for is Who's Who, Volume 18. And this features the Phantom Stranger's quote-unquote origin, per se, which is not much of an origin to speak of. I don't think I've ever read an entry in Who's Who with the word unknown 
used so many times, Billy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. This is crazy. Like, uh, you'll have, obviously, his personal data, alter ego, unknown, marital status, unknown, known relatives, (laughs) unknown, base of operations, unknown, if any. (laughs) And, Uh... And then, you know, with occupation, you've got conscience. (laughs) <laughs> that's his occupation wow. and then you get to his history the word unknown pops out three times you get to powers and weapons okay once but still if you if you take this into account this is probably like what more than 10 times that they've used the word unknown great art though by Jim Apero, um on this phantom stranger issue entry I'd say get this who's who issue just for this entry alone it's so brilliant but there's many good entries in this so you won't be wasting your money they've recently released who's who on uh, comiXology and on the dc universe app so so get that but the originals are better you know that it hasn't been digitally remastered i've got a, a stack of the originals sitting here which i picked up again once i started listening to the fire and water network uh networks who's who coverage uh about five or six years ago so worth getting if you're into the phantom stranger now, Billy, not to take up too much of your time here, but I do have a third uh, recommendation, which is going to mm-hmm. sound strange. This is a, a graphic novel I picked up um, pro- pro- probably about seven or eight years ago. It was released in 2009, and it's called Doctor 13, Architecture and Morality, or sorry, Architecture and Mortality by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. <laughs> now, I mm, never wow. in my life would have thought I would have been recommending a Dr. 13 book. But this gives you what we talked about earlier. This gives you what you want. You've got Dr. 13 in a universe with a talking Nazi gorilla, with <laughs> a little uh, Nemo in Slumberland type uh, kid who can grant wishes, with um, the ghost of the haunted tank, with... Andrew Bennett, I Vampire, and with Captain Fear, the pirate from the past of uh, DC Comics. And you've got, for some reason, Anthro, the the, the Neanderthal boy <laughs> from Crisis on Infinite Earths and, and you know, uh, some wow. Joe Kubert penned issues. And you've got, listen to this. Uh, I don't know why she's here. Infectious Lass from the Substitute Legion <laughs> from the 31st century. <laughs> Oh, wow. They've all been thrown together in this tale, and you've got Dr. 13 interacting with all of them and still not believing any of them are real. <laughs> oh, wow. But that is crazy. It's crazy, man. But Brian Azzarello, I love the guy he's from you know the horror comics like Moonshine and from mm-hmm. crime stories like 100 Bullets, and he did that amazing relaunch of Wonder Woman with the very same artist, Cliff Chang, in the New 52, which is probably the only New 52 book I enjoyed. Um, and you know, uh, basically you've got great art, great story and very funny. It's, it's a, it's not a horror comic. It's a com- uh, comedic, uh, collection, uh, more so than anything else. But I would recommend you pick this up. Dr. 13 architecture and mortality. It's a batshit insane story. Yeah. Two really good creators right there. Oh yeah. So how can you go wrong with that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So, Billy, that's it for my recommendations. Um, before we go, though, I want you to tell the listeners where they can find you on the Internet and uh, tell them a little bit about uh, your podcast, um, which is also uh, Magazines and Monsters, uh, similarly titled to your Magazines and Monsters blog. Yeah, so I decided to 
get into the podcasting uh, realm here with, like you said, the same name as the blog, Magazines and Monsters. You can look for it on you know iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify, and it's going to be every two weeks um, rotating between comics, and there will be a lot of you know horror and uh, bizarre comics uh, talked about on there. There'll be some superheroes too, but mostly uh, more uh, strange material. And then the other week within the rotation will be a horror, more horror and some sci-fi films, but a lot of uh, Hammer uh, Studios uh, efforts. So, uh, you know, they're my favorite studio of all time, and I think they uh, really set the standard for uh, horror films. So there'll be a lot of uh, Hammer talk on there and maybe even some familiar voices. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that, Billy. Thanks mm-hmm. for starting that up because, you know, I haven't uh, encountered lots of podcasts with Hammer Talk. There are some, of course, probably many, but um, none in my uh, wheelhouse, none that I really enjoy listening to. But I've listened to your promo and, um, you know, we've done a show together, of course, at on Into the Weird. So, um, you know, I'm really liking what, what you're going to be talking about and what's on the docket. So thanks for starting that up and giving me an extra bit of uh, podcasting. Uh, time that I might want to spend, you know, listening to someone talk. Um, I appreciate that. And then, sure, no problem, Billy. So I'm sure listeners can expect to hear from you again on Longbox of Darkness. Um, you're, I've uh, put you down for a couple of shows in the future. I hope um, that we'll get together again soon. But right now, you're very busy with your own things. However, they can look forward to Into the Weird, where you're the permanent host, uh, along with me. And that'll be released every two weeks. So we're going to have another episode in a week's time that they can look forward to. Um, and that's where they can find us on the regular. And yep, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to drop any hints what we're going to be discussing soon, but it's going to be something in the horror <laughs> vein a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Billy, thanks for joining me on the Long Box of Darkness. I've been wanting to have you on for ages and we finally made it happen. So again, much appreciated, man. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Herman. (laughs) All right, everybody. That's it from Billy D and myself. I'll return with the contact details for the show, how you can reach us. um, And in fact, you can do so by sending us an email to darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also contact us uh, via the blog, which is at www.longboxofdarkness.com. And you can, of course, um, send us voice files as well. MP3s are most welcome. Send that to our email address, which is, again, at darklongbox at gmail.com. But that's it, listeners, for another show. Thank you for tuning into Longbox of Darkness. And um, pleasant screams. Enjoy this month of October. And have a wonderful Halloween. But before that time, I'll be back with another show. So keep your eyes peeled. Take care, listeners. Good night.